I'm standing some 5,000 feet up the side of Mount Sefton in Auraki National Park. It's the perfect place to view the mighty South Island River catchments. To my left stands Lake Pukaki and down the valley to the Waitaki system. To my right, the Southern Alps stretching all the way to the Fiordland coast with New Zealand's largest river, the Clutha, and just over the horizon, Lake Manapuri and the Tasman Sea. It's easy to see why, in the middle of last century, the electricity pioneers thought they had it made. These gigantic river catchments were, in their minds, the saviour of the nation, providing an endless supply of water, the perfect renewable resource for hydroelectric energy. The Energy Makers On 16th of September 1957, Mr Guzman, Minister in Charge of the New Zealand Electricity Department, declared Benmore a project. Well, you're right now at the entrance of the machine hall, and this is where the turbines will set that will generate the power for the Manipuri hydro scheme. In this hall of the mountain kings, to sit in state, great generators from West Germany, married to great turbines from Britain, through transformers from Italy, through switchgear made in Britain, and onto the towers made in Japan, to thrust New Zealand into the second half of the 20th century. Lake Manapuri will not be touched and we, we will fight this decision all the way and uh, there are many people behind us. Government plans to introduce a bill into Parliament today which, if passed, will give it the water right for the Clyde High Dam. If the men down there want jobs, and that's part of the reason why the dam's going ahead in the short term, then they must be prepared to take normal wage rates. If they're not prepared to do that, and the only option for the government is that the dam doesn't go ahead and they don't get their jobs. We are going to build the Clyde Dam, even if we have to pass legislation to do it. Let's leave the civil engineering feats of the past for a moment and look to the future. The policymakers here in Wellington have their own grand vision. New Zealand needs 3,500 megawatts of new electricity over the next 20 years to maintain economic growth. And the Energy Minister David Parker has outlined how the country is going to get it. New Zealand's in the really privileged position of having low-cost renewable energy. We've already got the third highest proportion in the world, and we can do even better than that using existing technology, which is already affordable. So we've got an ambition to get to 90% renewable by 2025. And to achieve that's pretty simple, in my view. We know that we've got to build about 175 megawatts of new renewable capacity each year, and this year we're building 300. The Energy Minister's view of the future sounds easy and simple, but does it mean major hydro schemes are back on the agenda? And what role will the South Island's rivers play in achieving the government's goal? Yes, there will be some more hydro. You know, Maybe uh, Meridian will get their consent for the uh, revised project, which is smaller in the lower Waitaki. But I don't think New Zealand needs to dam all of our remaining rivers. There is a balance to be struck here, and we're just really privileged that we've got alternatives like uh, geothermal and wind, which are probably cheaper anyway. 
But David Parker's view of the future isn't one that's shared by all. Energy analyst Tony Baldwin believes hydroelectric power should be the backbone of New Zealand's energy future. Hydro currently accounts for around 65% of our production. The other renewable is mainly geothermal. Um, but gas is around 20% of our current electricity production. So if we've got to get renewables up to 90%, that means we have to effectively replace or displace um, coal, gas and oil, which uh, account for around 20% of our electricity production, and at the same time meet uh, annual growth of 2% on average in electricity demand. So we've got to shrink what we're currently doing and also meet uh, increased demand from renewables. Certainly the generating companies believe further hydro schemes are necessary if the country is to meet its electricity needs. Contact Energy's Chief Executive David Baldwin, who happens to be Tony Baldwin's brother, says while wind and geothermal will play a major role, more hydro is definitely being investigated and the environmental effects will need to be managed within individual communities. In order to move from sort of the 60-something percent renewable we are now to 90%, there will be a significant increase in the amount of, uh, of wind generation and, over time, the introduction of new hydro generation as well. And, and clearly they're all very visible projects, so there needs to be a, a realisation from the, you know, the nation as a whole that there will be other impacts of achieving this 90% uh, goal aside from, from just climate change, and they'll be you know, quite visual in some respects and, and quite uh, dislocating for others. David Baldwin agrees with the Energy Minister that the public may not be enthusiastic about the further damming of the nation's rivers, but also believes to achieve the government's goal of 90% renewable energy, the public will need to swing behind the vision. He says some brave steps will need to be taken. Meridian Energy's Chief Executive Keith Turner says whichever way New Zealand moves forward, renewable energy or not, there'll need to be a balancing act to mitigate the effects of generating electricity. Power stations are major effects on the uh, landscape. I mean, a, a big thermal power station with its tall chimneys and its smoke is one sort of effect. A wind turbine is another sort of effect, a visual one. A lake and a power station is a different sort of effect. And of course with power there is a trade-off. There is absolutely a trade-off. If we don't develop something, we can't all have a reliable power supply. Dr Turner, who retires this week after 39 years in the electricity industry, says the government's renewable energy goal will be impossible to achieve without including new major hydro development in the mix. There is going to be a place in, a, in an increasingly sensitive climate world for major hydro development. Let's face it, New Zealand has one of these rare attributes of tremendous renewable energy resources and the rest of the world is facing major costs for adjusting to climate. Uh, we've got to take advantage of those attributes and I think we can and I think we will see more hydro development to do that. Meridian Energy is so confident hydroelectricity is the way of the future, it's lodged plans to build an 85 megawatt high dam on the Mokohinui River on the South Island's west coast. The company will also forge ahead with plans for the Lower Waitaki River, the so-called Aqua 2 proposal, which could see a scaled-back version of the company's original $1.5 billion grand scheme for the lower reaches of the river. Dr Turner says rivers already heavily modified by hydroelectric development should be at the top of the list for further modification. 
So why has Meridian Energy drawn up plans for a pristine, untouched West Coast river? There are still places in the country which don't receive a great deal of public attention, do have significant hydro potential, and should also be utilised. And uh, so it's not a... You can't lay down a single rule, and I think that's where the RMA does offer an opportunity to balance the, the public interests of rivers against the, uh, their potential for, for power generation. Plans for the Waitaki River are well known, but with Meridian now indicating that it's prepared to test the Resource Management Act when it comes to untouched West Coast waterways, what other rivers could be targeted? There's no doubt in my mind that uh, a river like the Waitaki, which has been heavily modified, if it's got further capacity to generate power and can do so in sympathy with other uses, then it's probably a better place to develop than than tackling a brand new river that's not been touched. I think the same applies to the Clutha. Uh, there's, there's a number of significant sites on the Clutha River. Above Clyde and the, the Queensbury and Luggett areas, I mean, I got the consents for Luggett back in the uh, 80s. They've lapsed, of course, but they represent developments on an existing modified river. I'm on the banks of the Clutha River at Queensbury, about halfway between Cromwell and Wanaka. If everything had gone to plan, I'd be under about 35 metres of water by now. The Earth Dam, its four-kilometre canal and powerhouse, would have been churning out about 180 megawatts of electricity. Likewise, downstream at Luggett, a 90-megawatt sister station, and on the Kawado River, two concrete dams producing about 180 megawatts each. The high dam at Clyde would have been different too. Its capacity increased to nearly 700 megawatts. The Upper Clutha development scheme was the last of New Zealand's great hydro projects, but it was not to be. A massive budget blowout at Clyde saw the cost of the dam triple, and some estimates quadruple, placing the final cost in the region of $2 billion. By the mid-80s, the country was over hydro, reinforced by a now famous rafting trip down the Kawaro River by the then Prime Minister David Longy, whose government immediately placed a moratorium over its untouched waters and shelved indefinitely plans for Luggett and Queensbury. But 25 years on, these sites are being eyed enviably once again. Contact Energy's David Baldwin won't be drawn on specifics, but has confirmed the company is investigating plans for the Clutha. The sites are well known. Apart from Luggett and Queensbury, Contact Energy owns much of the land needed for a concrete dam at Tuapeka Mouth near Beaumont, some 45 kilometres below the Roxburgh Dam. He says in today's environment, any plans for the Clutha River will include extensive consultation with the residents living in the area. And rather than just rely on the government pushing through legislation, more of a balancing act is required. You're never ever going to please everyone with a large-scale hydro project. That's just an impossibility. But I wouldn't agree in the sense of just pushing through. I think there, you know, with a better communication strategy, uh, which we would consider you know, for a project that we're, we are you know, preparing, that's part of the reason we won't, won't be specific about what we're looking at today, is we are preparing the comm strategy in terms of how we would go about uh, demonstrating or uh, communicating the pros and the cons, and there are always pros and cons to this sort of project, uh, to the communities that we'll be interacting with. And that starts with the, you know, the people in, in the southern part of the South Island, it goes to you know, the, the, the island as a whole, and the whole country. So communicating what the benefits may be may help to smooth the process instead of just barreling it through through, you know, through enabling legislation. 
uh, I, at the end of the day, I suspect that legislation will, might be required for for a project of that size, just given that it will be, you know, like Clyde was, one of the largest projects in the country. Uh, but communications with the local communities and the and the regional councils and the and the country as a whole, I think, is a responsibility of a developer. Well, the people of Cromwell know all too well what it's like to have uh, a dam built nearby. I've come here to the Cromwell Mall, built in the mid-80s to replace the old commercial heart of the town, which was inundated when Lake Dunstan was formed behind the Clyde Dam. It was a controversial move, and, and the fact it was traffic-free uh, worried many business owners who felt they'd miss out on passing trade. Well, perhaps the best man to discuss how Cromwell coped is Peter Mead, who was in his mid-30s when he was elected Mayor of Cromwell in the late 1970s. Today he's got an accounting firm in one of the commercial buildings here in the mall. Peter, thanks for joining me. Uh, let's look at things realistically, you know, 25 years on. Is Cromwell better off for having the Clyde Dam than if it didn't come at all? The answer is yes, although some people would naturally dispute that. There are still people who look at the traditional beauty of the, the Cromwell Gorge, which uh, was uh, sacrificed. Against that is really a town that has been able to bring together the old and the new, I think in a very successful fashion. Rather interestingly, one of the major benefits that accrued to the district was the availability of the climatic data that the Ministry of Works gathered over a particularly long period of time. That data resulted in producing the very kind of basic information that people needed to establish the burgeoning wine industry here. So completely unexpected but a huge benefit. What about the downside? Are there any downsides these days? Frankly, I, I can't actually see any, which is a little surprising because uh, as you get older, one tends to think you get a bit grumpier and, and um, pine for the old days, but I certainly do not pine for the old days. People say the old street was a very historic and beautiful place. I just ask them, did they ever work down there because I'm sure that if they did they would realise what a hellhole it really was. And of course the lake itself, I mean the, the recreational amenity that you have there is, is really quite special isn't it? I feel it's only been in the last couple of years that they have become uh, very attractive and, and uh, well used. <laughs> For a long time they seemed to be just looked at but now people are out there uh, participating. The fact is it's taken Cromwell almost two decades to really get on its feet after the building of the Clyde Dam. So how does Mr Mead feel about the possibility of further development at Luggett and Queensbury? There is always a David and Goliath situation in any development, whether it be the Ministry of Works or Contact, and as long as they act reasonably, don't try to overimpose themselves, overpromise. Uh, there is always an avenue available for a suitable outcome that history will ultimately judge as to whether or not it's a success. The success I believe Cromwell has enjoyed has come not about because we were able to reach agreement 
between the then Borough Council and the Ministry of Works at a first meeting. It was a bloody determined fight uh, for both parties and particularly the small Borough Council. Uh, but I was, I was lucky, I had youth on my side at that stage and maybe even the innocence of youth. Uh, but I also had the support of some very good councillors who were determined to make sure that um, the long-term benefits to Cromwell were accrued and not simply uh, Cromwell sacrificed for the short-term gain of building a dam. Three years ago, I interviewed the current mayor of central Otago, Malcolm McPherson, about the possibility of further hydroelectric development on the Clutha River. At that time, he told me it would never happen. But things are changing. Without rule change, I think our snapshot summary that Big Hydro is dead would still be the case. I think it would be impossible to consent significant hydro development easily, certainly, if at all, in that environment as it currently stands, because people are concerned about the other things that are part of our environment, the other elements of our landscape that they value. So I think it will take brownouts, it'll take cold showers, it'll take changes to the rules, and I think, I think when the time comes that won't be such a big problem. And my feeling is that sooner rather than later. The Central Otago District Council recently gave Meridian Energy the green light to build one of the world's biggest wind farms near Ranfurly. That decision is now destined for the Environment Court. But could Big Hydro expect the same favourable treatment from the council? If there is to be Big Hydro, or even medium-sized hydro, then it'll be by government fiat. It'll be because a future government, or even maybe this one, but certainly a future one, says this has to happen, this is how it will happen. We'll do our best to mitigate the effects, folks, but it's coming. I think that's, I'd be, I'd be sorry to see that happen, because I think when communities get a chance to contribute, and, we, and particularly when we're thinking about mitigation, about the downside of these developments, the outcomes are better. The opposition energy spokesperson Jerry Brownlee says if National is elected to government, there will be changes to the Resource Management Act, making it easier to build major civil projects which are in the country's interest. What I am strongly hinting at is that if you want to get the best out of uh, geothermal, the best out of wind and the best out of hydro, uh, then you do need a process that's going to ensure you get there, not one that uh, uh, prolongs the day uh, toward the, the decision to build. At the moment we spend probably uh, uh, more time um, getting ready uh, for a project by way of the, uh, the, the convoluted um, and long consent process than we actually spend in, in the build of the projects. But the Greens are looking at altogether different options. Co-leader Russell Norman says forget about big civil projects and look at smaller options close to the centre of demand. Now that might be a handful of smaller scale wind turbines, say 500 kilovolt uh, turbines, uh, which are owned by a smaller community and they can either take the power if they need it or feed it into the local grid. And what about climate change itself? How will that affect hydropower? Barely a month ago the South Island lakes were at their lowest since the 1992 dry year saw the country close to blackouts. Very few studies have been done to indicate how climate change will affect New Zealand's electricity supply. The exception is Emeritus Professor Blair Fitzharris from Otago University, who's a global leader on the effects of climate change, both as a researcher and a leading expert on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's studied New Zealand's energy situation and sees better times ahead for hydro. The westerlies over the South Island of New Zealand become stronger. That's really going to determine our weather into the future. And what that means for hydro is that 
the inflows into the hydro lakes will be driven by the strength of that westerly circulation. At the moment, um, the inflows come from a mixture of sources, from rainfall, from seasonal snow, and from the melt of glaciers. The rainfall is by far the most important, and that mainly occurs in the westerlies with what we call spillover precipitation, which builds over the main divide and into the headwaters of the major rivers, hydro rivers of the uh, South Island. So as the westerlies increase into the future, we can expect there'll be even more spillover precipitation. So there'll be even higher inflows than what we observe at the moment. He believes hydro generation should be a major part of the mix for the future. Hydro, despite its environmental and uh, problems and opposition from certain sectors, is still one of our potential sources of generating capacity, which is uh, renewable. And in the climate change context of uh, trying to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, particularly if we have strict targets into the future, well then this, we, we have to look at hydro, I think, uh, more seriously and uh, find ways of overcoming some of the uh, opposition arguments to that. As the argument for new hydro development increases, more pressure will be placed on Transpower to ensure the national grid is up to the task. I'm standing beside the Pole 2 switching station at the Benmore Dam. It's here where the alternating current is converted to direct current and sent up to the top of the South Island and across Cook Strait to feed North Island consumers. The system can and often does operate in reverse, but the technology is old and decaying and needs replacing. So what's Transpower doing to ensure the national grid will be able to handle a renewable energy future? The issues we're getting into is we have to look forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and when we look forward... Dr Patrick Strange is the new head of Transpower and says the state-owned enterprise is meeting the challenge head-on. Well, basically, we're probably going to have to build a bigger and a, and a stronger grid. Now, the cost of that, when you put it in perspective, is not huge. You know, some of our numbers, like the Waikato project, six or seven hundred million, Pole One, six or seven hundred million, they sound like big numbers. But um, you look at the value of some of our generating plant and these big hydro schemes, transmission is actually quite a small part of it. Our piece of the your bill, um, the bill you and I pay, is about 10% at the moment. The difficulty for Transpower is predicting where and when new generation will come online and building infrastructure ahead of that. What we've got to be careful about is we really don't know the future. We don't know if there's going to be oh, thousands of megawatts of wind in the South Island or somebody's going to put it up in the north or geothermal's going to be way bigger. So we tend to have to build to be in a position to support any of those. The cost of sort of overbuilding slightly is quite low. The cost of underbuilding and getting it wrong um, is enormous. And one of the problems is our lead time to build a new line is, is quite long. It can be with, you know, going through the consenting and working with the communities, getting the land access. It, we can easily look at five, six, seven, eight years. A wind farm nowadays, um, we're seeing them built in two or three. Making sure electricity is produced and delivered to consumers in an efficient, fair and reliable manner is the role of the Electricity Commission. Its new head is David Cagle. 
So how will the Commission ensure the government's target of 90% renewable energy is reached? We do have the power to require them to produce a grid upgrade plan. We haven't used that power yet. Bear in mind, the set of rules we're talking about are only, in the longest case, four years old. So we are, to some extent, still getting used to the best way of using them. But I don't want that to sound as though that's an excuse for you know, not doing our job properly. The fact of the matter is there's no need, mostly, for the Commission to be saying to Transpower, for goodness sake, isn't it obvious that we need a transmission upgrade here and here? Yes, the answer is it is obvious. And in all the cases that I can think of, Transpower is currently at work reviewing the need and making proposals. So I, I know that in the course of this year, we will have at least five grid upgrade proposals from Transpower. Mr Cagle says he's confident the work Transpower is planning to do over the next five years will ensure the national grid is ready to meet future demand. The Electricity Commission has authorised $1.2 billion worth of expenditure on the transmission system over the last two years. Now that's mainly to do with the 400 kV link on the, the north part of uh, the North Island. That's a very big project. And we'll be in court later this year you know, looking at whether we made the right decision in, in relation to that. But it's not as though large sums of money aren't being approved in relation to the grid. Actually, as a matter of fact, they are. Uh, and then we'll get through that period and probably in five years' time we, we may not be spending quite as much on the grid as will have been authorised over the next couple of years. This is the confluence of the Oho Pukaki Canal, a 26-kilometre ribbon which winds its way across the Mackenzie Basin. The two canals join here before flowing through the three Oho power stations. And like this canal, New Zealand is also at a crossroads. The decisions made in the coming few years will determine the way the country meets its energy needs into the coming decades. And in an increasingly uncertain world, the onus will be upon every citizen to strike the right balance and ensure that when we turn on the lights, the electricity still flows.